Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. We must have lunch real soon. Your luggage is checked through. We've got inflation licked. I'll get right back to you. It's just a standard form. Tomorrow without fail. Pleased to meet you. Thanks a lot. Your check is in the mail. Marooned, marooned, marooned in a blizzard of lies. Marooned, marooned, marooned in a blizzard of lies. Your toes and knees aren't all you'll freeze when you're in it up to your thighs. It looks like snow, but you never know when you're Yeah, you can't even write a jazz tune about lying without alluding to Richard Nixon and all of the mendacity that uh, attached itself to the phenomenon of Watergate, which, as we're going to try to explain today, I think is not really just one thing. And it's certainly not really just one, quote unquote, third rate burglary. Um, I can't think about Watergate or talk about Watergate without just telling you very quickly. So uh, Watergate happened right around the time I graduated. I mean, the burglary happened right around the time I graduated from high school. Uh, I then, if you read my column in the Hearst newspapers, you know, I, I then went to college where my freshman counselor was a person named Gary Trudeau who already had a successful comic strip uh, in the papers and, and then found in Watergate the perfect material to make that comic strip very specifically topical. Uh, I then came home for the summer and my father, my parents were Republicans, lifelong Republicans. I think it's fair to say Goldwater Republicans. Uh, and my father was watching the hearings uh, on television. It's almost impossible to convey the degree to which there hadn't been a TV event, anything like this. Uh, and he was watching them very, very seriously. And occasionally I would hear him say, these people are evil. Uh, and he was talking about Nixon and his co-conspirators. Uh, and he was never a Republican after that for the rest of his life. He was an independent, uh, unaffiliated voter. That's how big a thing it was for someone like him. Not everybody processed it that way. But I'm going to stop talking because we're very excited today to have uh, as uh, our guest for the first two segments, Garrett Graff, the author of Watergate, A New History. That's exactly what it is. And of course, so first of all, Garrett Graff, uh, great timing. Uh, you've got the 50th anniversary of the burglary. You've got the January 6th hearings unfolding. And then uh, one of two teams is going to win the Larry O'Brien Trophy uh, in the NBA championships, uh, named after the same guy whose office was invaded on the night of that 
famous burglary and whose scotch and uh, a previous burglary was apparently peed into, uh, if we are to believe Howard Hunt or whoever it is who says it in your book. But anyway, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. So, so yeah, you know, one of the many, many tropes that, you know, arose from Watergate and stayed with us is it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. You make a pretty persuasive case here. No, it's the, it's the crimes. The crimes are bigger than the crime of the cover-up. Could you just maybe just say a little bit more about that for people who just, you know, I mean, I, I think a lot of people, even the people who think they understand this story, couldn't explain it to somebody on a bus. Yeah, and that was uh, I would count myself included in that uh, when I started this project. I, um, you know, as a journalist, I've spent the last you know five seven years covering Trump and Russia and the first impeachment, um, and that was what led me to be interested in going back and looking at the last time our nation confronted these questions about what you do with a president who is abusing his power. Um, and what I pieced together in this book, and, and the goal of the book was to try to tell the full story of Watergate start to finish, soup to nuts, um, in a way that actually hadn't been done in the last 25 years, um, during which time there's been a, a host of revelations that have really changed the way that we look at Watergate. Um, and, and that I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about um, in the next few minutes. But the biggest thing to me was trying to recontextualize and retell Watergate as not an event, but as a mindset. Because what you see is that the burglary, the thing that we're marking the 50th anniversary of this week um, at the Democratic National Committee offices uh, at the Watergate office complex, was actually um, the equivalent of America walking into the second or third act of a play. And that Watergate, as we now understand it, is really an umbrella of about a dozen distinct but interrelated scandals with overlapping players that all emanate from this dark criminal conspiratorial mindset that Richard Nixon brings to the White House in 1968-69 and then permeates the ranks of his campaign and his administration. And that what you see is this whole flood of abuses of power, um, of conspiracies and criminal schemes and um, uh, and, and, you know, the weaponizing of the U.S. government against political enemies, um, some of the scandals of which um, would rank on their own among the worst political scandals of modern American history, but within Watergate are, are you know, written off as, as just a sideshow. Right. There's actually sort of a great moment in your book uh, where um, Lowell Weicker who the only Watergate person that I actually know, but Lowell Weicker uh, bumps into his neighbor, John Dean. It's the late fall of 1973. They're outside their properties, and, you know, they're just kind of chopping it up, shooting the breeze, and Weicker goes, so, did we miss anything? Uh, and Dean shakes his head and says, uh, well, probably not, except for the tax fraud. And then you write, Weicker took the bait. 
After the Chenault Affair, the Houston Plan, the Kissinger wiretaps, the illegal bombing of Cambodia, the Pentagon Papers and the Ellsberg burglary, ITT and the Dita Beard memo, the Vesco donation, the milk price fixing, the Watergate burglary and cover-up, the campaign rat effing, I'm not allowed to say that word, and Spiro Agnew's bribery case, there was still more. And there does turn out to be more. It turns out that in a way that is eerily reminiscent uh, of some of the scandals of the Trump period, uh, so that uh, first of all, some of Nixon's donations are not maybe not to be real donations, but also there's some big questions about to what degree in terms of improving Nixon's properties with government money, are they adding to his security or to his luxury? That's a very familiar question uh, here uh, immediately post Trump. But that whole list of things uh, that that's in that paragraph, that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Exactly. And, and that all of these things are interrelated in ways that we didn't really even understand at the time. Um, and perhaps the, the sort of biggest change in revelation um, is this thing that you, you mentioned called the Chenault Affair, which is uh, we did not even understand until the last decade that this was an event. We didn't understand what happened in this event, and we certainly didn't understand that it was related to Watergate. But it now actually turns out to be basically where Watergate begins. And it, it, it's this event, a series of events in the fall of 1968, where Richard Nixon is running for president. He's a private citizen, the former vice president of the United States running against the sitting vice president, Hubert Humphrey. Lyndon Johnson, of course, is desperate to end the Vietnam War and is convening the Paris peace talks. And... And Richard Nixon and his campaign director, John Mitchell, uh, work with this Washington doyenne named Anna Chenault to interfere and stall the Paris peace talks. Um, they, they go to the South Vietnamese government and say, basically, if you torpedo the peace talks, we'll give you a better deal when we're elected president. Um and to put a very, very fine point on this, you know, this is Richard Nixon in the fall of 1968 keeping the Vietnam War going for his own political benefit. I mean, it is one of the, you know, most credible allegations approaching outright treason that we have against any political figure uh, in American history. And Johnson discovers this treachery in the final hours of the 68 campaign confronts Nixon, Nixon denies it, and then basically the clock runs out and Nixon wins the election before Johnson is able to act on it. And so Johnson decides for patriotic reasons that he can't undermine the president-elect and he classifies and buries the whole thing. And what we now understand is that this becomes the sort of secret and treachery that Richard Nixon will do anything to protect because Richard Nixon knows that Johnson knows. And so sort of Edgar Allan Poe telltale heart style, <laughs> this treachery is beating away, eating away at Nixon's presidency uh, as it continues. And it is his fears about the Chenault affair becoming public in 1971 amid the Pentagon Papers uh, that leads to his massive overreaction to the Pentagon Papers, 
uh, leads eventually to the creation of the plumbers unit, that, that sort of infamous unit with uh, G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt that does all of the dirty tricks for the White House and then ultimately the campaign. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately is responsible for the burglary at the Watergate in the summer of 1972. So this is all of these things end up being connected. You know, the Vietnam War, the Pentagon Papers, Watergate, these weren't three separate events. This was all one poison spreading through the center of Richard Nixon's presidency. Yeah, right. And I think, you know, Vietnam does sort of stretch all the way through uh, running on a parallel, if not the exact same track as Watergate. Um, there's uh, one of the things that you point out is that there was even talk of a fourth possible article of impeachment that would have had to do with the illegal and undisclosed bombing of Cambodia. And it really is kind of remarkable, you know, how we're still, people are still kind of still trying to shape this narrative to fit their own preconceptions. You probably saw a few days ago in the Wall Street Journal, there's an interview with uh, Michael Barone, a kind of self-styled journalistic historian where he basically does the old Nixon got a raw deal thing. And at one point he says that liberals, you know, they don't give Nixon credit for a whole bunch of stuff that they've value, including the de-escalation of Vietnam. And I'm thinking, well, no, I just got through reading in Graf's book about back in 68, he was actually interfering with the police, the peace process, slowing it down as much as possible. And then we know there's just this incredible expansion uh, into, you know, into Cambodia. I mean, the idea that he de-escalated Vietnam, uh, I think, takes some mental gymnastics to really sort of buy into. But, But that's you know, that's, I think, another point of your book, which is we're still kind of debating the particulars of a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, what you're talking about there is this fascinating psychological question at the heart of Richard Nixon, which is this is by effectively any measure one of the most consequential presidents of the 20th century. I mean, one of the two or three presidents uh, who really matter in the 20th century. Um, you know, he is, uh, Richard Nixon is the the turning point, the hinge for really the entire American century as, as he ushers out the liberal consensus of the New Deal and the Great Society and ushers in the Southern strategy and this much darker, racialized, nativist, populist, uh, fear-mongering Republican Party that is um, ultimately, you know, finds its conclusion, natural conclusion, I think, in the election of Donald Trump uh, in, in 2016. But, you know, this is a president who, uh, um, you know, he, he finds detente with the Soviet Union in the Cold War. He reopens China. He's the first president to visit Moscow, the first president to visit Beijing, the first president to visit a communist bloc country in the Cold War. He signs Title IX. He declares the war on cancer. He ends the draft. He creates OSHA. He creates the EPA. He brings a thousand women into the middle management of the federal government and the first female military aides to the White House. Um, you know, this is someone who really changes the country and lays the groundwork for what we later recognize as the Reagan revolution, uh, except I think it's in many ways actually the Nixon revolution first, and yet can't get out of his own way, that he is so paranoid, so conspiracy-oriented, 
that he basically undoes all of his own greatness um, with this scandal that will forever shorthand and shadow his presidency that we now refer to as Watergate. Right. And it's we should say that it's a feature, not a bug. You know, it's been there his entire adult life. Uh, from the, as you point out, really, you know, the first major race that he ran against a guy named Voris out in California. He's got, he says, we got to get some spies into their campaign. I mean, his default setting is, I'm going to throw a snowball, but I'm putting a rock in it first. That's how I play snowball. Uh, you know, and, and so it, it's almost... It almost doesn't need to be decided that you're going to do some of these things, that you're going to have plumbers, that you're going to go after, you know, Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist. You're just going to do these things because that's who you are. But I think it really does sort of culminate with the burglary in the sense that, as you point out, you know, it's just crazy to need some kind of deep intelligence about the DNC in this race that you are going to win by historic proportions. You're already way ahead in the polls. Uh, you know, you're going to win 49 out of 50 states. Uh, <laughs> you need to do this other stuff. Maybe you could say something about that. Yeah, and you're exactly right. You know, Richard Nixon ends up winning the 72 campaign by the largest landslide in American presidential history. Um, and and so there's this deep irony to the fact that basically none of the dirty tricks that he needed actually end up mattering at all. Um, and, and, and in fact, you know, by the fall of 72, um, you know, America has already noticed that his campaign was involved in the Watergate burglary and shrugged it off and reelects him by this incredible margin. Um, but Nixon again, just can't get out of his own way. This is someone who, you know, narrowly loses the presidency to John F. Kennedy in 1960, um, arguably, as has come up in the last, um, you know, year since, you know, Donald Trump lies about the 2020 election. Arguably, Richard Nixon might have had the 1960 election actually stolen from him by the Democrats in places like Illinois. Um, but he decides not to fight not to fight that um he narrowly wins in 68 then um and, and in fact had the chenault affair not panned out and the uh, paris peace talks made some progress in october 1968 he might very well have lost the 68 campaign um and so he comes into 72 uh, basically deciding that he's going to win at all costs and that he is going to embark upon uh, this dirty tricks campaign. And G. Gordon Liddy, uh, this, you know, uh, uh, overly imaginative, rambunctious conservative uh, who had been part of the plumbers unit, gets put in charge of the dirty tricks for the campaign uh, and comes up with this fantastical plan um, that he calls Operation Gemstone, that he goes in to the attorney general's office. John Mitchell is the Nixon uh, campaign director and the sitting attorney general. And he pitches this plan that involves everything from you know spy planes that are going to shadow the Democratic nominee around the country to... Uh, teams of call girls who are going to be deployed at the Democratic convention in Miami 
uh, to lure back and blackmail Democratic Party officials. Um, the, the, the burglaries and black bag jobs like what we end up seeing at the Watergate targeting the Democratic nominee. Um, and this crazy plan to kidnap anti-war protesters, anti-Nixon protest leaders, drug them and take them to Mexico for the duration of the Republican convention to ensure that there is no trouble at the Republican convention. Um, and John Mitchell, the sitting attorney general, watches this presentation, listens to this uh, presentation, and doesn't say to G. Gordon Liddy, you know, this is a wild criminal conspiracy. I'm going to have the FBI agents sitting outside my office arrest you on the way out the door. You know, this has no business being close to the president. He sort of takes his pipe out of his mouth and says, you know, Gordon, uh, this is a little bit more expensive than I was planning on. Could you come back in a couple weeks with a plan that's about half this size? Um, and, you know, that's the dirty tricks campaign that ends up leading to the burglary at the Watergate on June 17th, 1972. So there's some things uh, in the book that I, I want to get into, just sort of um, a few little vignettes here. Uh I'm a Connecticut boy, so I'm kind of interested in some of the Connecticut stuff. Although maybe I want to start with Patrick Gray because I think there's an interesting. So Patrick Gray is uh, the guy who kind of surprises Mark Felt. It turns out Patrick Gray is going to be uh, Hoover's successor, uh, and, and he gets caught up in this. And I think he's an interesting example of somebody who probably wouldn't ever have done anything like this, uh, like what he did. He actually went back to Stonington, Connecticut, and burned some relevant <laughs> documents in, in his fireplace. Uh, and, you know, he, I don't know, he always came across to me as one of the examples of somebody who wasn't bent and probably wasn't going to be bent, except that when you hang around with the wrong people, and one of the wrong people is the president of the United States, you're going to do stuff that, you know, you're going to A, immediately regret and probably wouldn't have done otherwise. But I mean, what's your take on all that? Yeah. And I think, you know, when we look back on Watergate 50 years after the fact, um, and one of the things I really tried to do in my book was bring the battles at the FBI into the center of the Watergate story in a way that we don't actually typically understand or think of how they actually altered the outcome of, of Watergate. You know, we for you know 40 years had this view of Deep Throat, the world's most famous anonymous source, as Hal Holbrook playing uh, Deep Throat in the movie All the President's Men, standing in the shadows of the parking garage, telling Robert Redford slash Bob Woodward, follow the money. And we've, we've imagined that Deep Throat was this pro-democracy, Nixon insider, disgusted at the corruption in the Oval Office and, you know, out there fighting for truth, justice, and apple pie. Um, but now that we actually understand in recent years that Deep Throat was Mark Felt, the deputy director of the FBI, um, it changes everything we know about the trajectory of Watergate. Because Mark Felt doesn't actually care about democracy and he doesn't actually care about Richard Nixon. He is a bitter bureaucrat who was passed over for the job that he thinks he deserves, the director of the FBI, and then makes it his personal mission to sink the guy who got the job instead, Patrick Gray, 
um, this Nixon loyalist, former Navy submarine commander, uh, and, and of course, Connecticut uh, resident. Um, and he uh, doesn't actually care that much about Richard Nixon at all. And there are these fascinating moments where we see that Mark Felt actually knows damaging information about Richard Nixon that he never bothers to tell anyone because he uh, he doesn't he's not out to sink Richard Nixon. He's out to sink Pat Gray and to to uh, get Pat Gray thrown out of office and to take the job of FBI director. Um, and that basically the FBI succession politics is what ends up driving so much of the leaking around Watergate that ends up with Richard Nixon basically as collateral damage to some bitter bureaucracy knife fighting at the FBI. All right. We have to take a little break here. Um, I, I need like three hours to do this whole thing because I have so many stuff, so many things I want to talk about. We'll take a little break. We'll come back with more of Garrett Graff. Richard Nixon, find yourself another country to be part of. Yes, and here's to the cops of Richard Nixon. They're chewing their tobacco as they lock the prison door. And their bellies bounce inside them when they knock you to the floor. No, they don't like taking prisoners in their private little wars. And behind their broken badges... Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're back. We're talking Watergate with Garrett Graff, uh, whose new book is Watergate, A New History. You know, there's so many ways in which Watergate still lives on in our popular imaginations and in our language, too. I mean, obviously, everything's a gate. Uh, Yogi Berra supposedly said even Napoleon had his Watergate. Uh, but uh, I'm you think about things like the non-denial, denial, the smoking gun, the system worked, uh, the Saturday, Saturday Night Massacre, our national nightmare is over. What did the president know and when did he know it? I mean, so much of the language, even things like expletive deleted. I, I'm not sure I'd ever seen that particular phrase except when they started publishing transcripts of the tapes and Nixon's language was so salty and, and anti-Semitic and and everything else that they had to delete expletives, as they put it. So maybe just we could just talk a little bit about where we are right now, Garrett Graff. And there are a lot of things in the books, book that really are interesting and have weird echoes. 
to to the modern moment. I mean, we should just begin by saying we can't seem to talk about anything without invo- invoking Watergate. Certainly with these January 6th hearings, there's a lot of talk. Who's the John Dean going to be? Is there a smoking gun? Right. It's so formative that we sort of hold it up as a mirror to everything new that we look at. Exactly. And and I think and I argue in the book um Watergate is in many ways what creates modern Washington. You know, it creates our modern political culture. It changes the way that Americans think about and interact with their government and and their president. Um, You know, one of the things that we forget is how new those Watergate hearings felt in the summer of 73. Um, you know, Congress didn't have the history of executive branch oversight hearings in the way that we now commonly think of them. Um, and, and in fact, when the Sam Irvin's committee is setting out to, you know, figure out the models for what it wants to do, it has to go all the way back to the congressional investigation of the Battle of Bull Run in 1861 to find good analogs. Um, and, and of course, now, you know, this is something that we see, you know, year in, year out uh, um, in terms of congressional oversight uh, hearings of the executive branch. Um, and that the the one sixth committee, you know, is very expressly structuring itself, you know, as a reaction in some ways to that era of Watergate uh, hearings. And that this is, um, you know, this is the moment that makes Washington modern. uh, And it's what delivers us, uh, you know, the the scandal culture. and, And as you said, basically, the language for political scandal uh, that we still use to this day. Yeah, and I think there's also an understanding that uh, that has grown over the decades that these events are television uh, events. That uh, that Watergate was a television event. We didn't. Li- Michael Shudson points this out in his book. We didn't really live through Watergate. We, we we didn't experience it the way you experience inflation or even a war. We watched it on television, uh, and and we watch Anita Hill on television. We watch Ali North on television. And the One Six Committee clearly understands this is a television event. We better make it a good television event, uh, and and use. It everything that, that that medium kind of offers to us. But I want to talk about another difference. There's a little moment in the book that I don't know why, but it jumped out at me. So I'll just quickly, we're, we're short on time, so let me speed past this a little bit. So Alexander Butterfield gets called um, uh, to testify. Uh, he's not expected to say anything all that interesting because, A, he's not even working around these people anymore. He's been exiled somewhere, and nobody knows that he knows about this taping system. And so he's, he's actually deposed, not by members of the committee initially, but by a couple of Deputy Council, uh, the Democrat goes takes about three, Democratic Council takes about three hours to question him. The Republican Council waits. I think his name is Sanders. He waits, uh, and, but he notices some things that Butterfield's saying, and so he kind of sets up a question that leads to Butterfield coughing up the information about this taping system. But the thing that struck me. Uh, in your book was that it was then decided that the Republican counsel would be, when this whole thing went public, when there was a full televised hearing and Butterfield was testifying in public, the Republican counsel would take the lead because A, Sanders was the one who kind of noticed this whole thing and asked the right question, but B, because Howard Baker uh, 
uh, had said, you know, we Republicans don't want to look flat-footed here. We don't want to look like we're, we don't know what's going on or we're not pursuing this. Or we, we should be clear that we are, you know, active and equal participants in this, which is so estranged from 2022. It is impossible to imagine a, a McConnell or a McCarthy or anybody saying something like that. Exactly. And I think that that's where you see, you know, look, that uh, Donald Trump's name appears uh, not at all in the main text of this book, um, but he looms over every page of our history of Watergate. And, and you know, the, the echoes are many and loud. Um, but when you ask sort of what's the difference between then and now, I think the clearest example is the behavior of the Republicans. That Watergate is, uh, you know, on one hand, a story of a criminal and corrupt president. Uh, it's also a story of the American system working. It's a hopeful story about American democracy and how our delicate ballet of checks and balances can work together to. Uh, force a, a corrupt president from office. Um, but to do so requires, you know, the media, the FBI, the Justice Department, the House, the Senate, the courts. Um, and when you look at Nixon versus Trump, uh, you know, the, the courts did their job, the media did their job, the um, Justice Department did its job. Um, where the system broke down was in the House and the Senate. Um, and where it broke down specifically was in the behavior of the Republicans in the House and the Senate, who in the Nixon years, um, you know, people like Lowell Weicker and, and Howard Baker and, and even Barry Goldwater understood that they had a role as legislators uh, to hold the co-equal branch, the executive branch in check. Um, and that they came to the process with an open mind and good faith and were sort of willing to follow uh, and understand and embrace the evidence as it was gathered. Um, and that's, of course, not what you saw in the Trump years, where Republicans acted not as members of Congress first, but as partisan Republicans first. Um, and that the number of Republicans who have... Uh, you know, come to this process in good faith and an open mind um, and been willing to follow the evidence where it leads is incredibly short. Um, you know, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger uh, effectively on the 1-6 committee. Um, and then, you know, you saw last night um, one of the very few Republicans who had voted to impeach Richard Nixon after January 6th lose his primary. Um, and that, you know, this is a very different political moment um, and it's one where our system is not up to speed for what is necessary to protect and preserve American democracy. Okay, last area that we've got to get into. And I just want to say this, this is a great book. And if you care anything about this or you don't know enough about it, you should read this book. And there's just so many anecdotes and fascinating things that I didn't know. And I feel like I, I know a lot about Watergate, but apparently I don't. Anyway, it's just terrific. But one of the other things that you undertake is this whole question of 
the journalistic legacy here and who did what and to what degree have we maybe mythologized Woodward and Bernstein. We should say that, you know, remarkably, All the President's Men, the book, came out before Nixon resigned. I mean, one thing that they did very effectively in order to turn themselves into the Sherlock Holmes and Watson of this story was to get a book in print before the story was even over. But you really sort of explore in this book the question of, how big a role did they play? To what degree are other journalistic contributions discounted? Maybe just like to say a little bit. Uh, and also, to what degree have they been entirely truthful about who they talked to, who talked to them, uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, one of the things that I think come came, came clear to me and, and uh, um, uh, that really I tried to do in in retelling in my book is – that this idea that we have in popular culture of you know Woodward Bernstein alone against the president was not really that accurate then and in fact that there was a constellation of about a half dozen reporters who really matter and keep the story alive in the public view from June of 1972 through March of 1973 um, and that arguably, in fact, Woodward and Bernstein, while they do a, a, a ton of good day-to-day reporting and, and breaking uh, of news, actually none of the three biggest stories of that era um, uh, come from them. Um, and, and that it, it's, in fact, a New York Times reporter who breaks the first story at, in the summer of 72 about the financial ties between the Watergate burglars and the Nixon campaign. Then um, it's actually, and this is a Connecticut story in in some ways, these two Los Angeles Times reporters, Jack Nelson and Ron Ostro, who find the burglary lookout, um, a a Connecticut former FBI agent named Al Baldwin um, in Connecticut, uh, and get him to tell a first-person version of the burglary in October 1972. Actually, Garrett, can I just jump in here and just say one thing for the listeners, too? So Al Baldwin is related to Raymond Baldwin, the kind of ultimate triple threat in Connecticut government. He was a governor, U.S. senator, and chief justice of the state Supreme Court. Uh, but the, my favorite, one of the, my favorite moments in the book, Garrett, is uh, Baldwin shows up uh, at the DNC headquarters in the Watergate, this is pre-break-in, uh, says that he's actually the nephew or grandson or something of John Bailey, the legendary Democratic power broker from Connecticut who became National Democratic chairman, and he wants a tour. And they give him a tour <laughs> uh, of the Democratic headquarters. He goes into O'Brien's office and everything, and then he goes back to McCord and Liddy or whoever, and he draws a floor plan <laughs> uh, of, of the DNC headquarters uh, that he's gotten that they've voluntarily you know, sort of given him a chance to get. Anyway, go on with your story. Exactly. And, and that, that you know, this story with Al Baldwin that is published in the Los Angeles Times really becomes the first time that you see this, this first person tie between the Nixon campaign and the Dirty Tricks operation. Um, and then ultimately it's Seymour Hirsch in January 73 who publishes word of the hush money payments going to burglars that begins to sort of crack open the burglary trial and ultimately leads to the creation of the Watergate Committee and the um, incredible work of the uh, Judge Sirica and the special prosecutor 
Um, and the, the, then the, you know, the ultimate irony of Woodward and Bernstein is that they largely disappear from the second year of the scandal because they go off and write all the president's men, um, thereby sort of, uh, you know, whether purposely or not claiming the fame of the Watergate moment, um, even as they actually skipped, uh, over the, you know, concluding chapters of the scandal. Yeah. Okay. I have so many more things I want to talk to you about, but my producer, Lily Tyson, is telling me that this segment is over. The book is Watergate, A New History by Garrett Graff. Uh, It's terrific. It's interesting. Uh, Carve out some time and read it. And thank you, sir, very much for your time and your work. Oh, it's my pleasure. And we are back. Time to say thank you. Thank you to Katie Tularski. She is uh, t- taking the role of Cat Pastor as technical producer today. She's our big boss here, so uh, fun to have her in the booth. And Lily Tyson, who is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this episode about Watergate. So we're going to move from what we've been talking about, which is the, the history of Watergate, uh, and move towards how it is understood in the popular consciousness. I would, by the way, recommend to people uh, Michael Schutzen book, uh, Watergate in American memory, where he deals pretty effectively with this, although some of his stuff is a little out of date at this point. But uh, Katie, let's maybe uh, get ready to play C1 here uh, before we introduce our guests. A lot of people's understanding, uh, as Gary Graff, Garrett Graff was just pointing out, a lot of people's understanding of Watergate derives from scenes like this one. Forget the myths that the media has created about the White House. Truth is, these are not very bright guys, and things got out of hand. Hunt's come in from the cold. Supposedly, he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. They follow the money. What do you mean? Where? Oh, I can't tell you that. But you could tell me that. No, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. That, of course, uh, is All the President's Men, released in 1976, directed by Alan Pakula. Here to talk uh, about this, about the the kind of cinematic memory of something like Watergate is Anne Hornaday, uh, Washington Post chief film critic and the author of Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies. Welcome to our conversation. Thank you, Colin. So, you know, Woodward and Bernstein did a smart thing. They wrote a book that was essentially written as a detective story with them as Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. It's a procedural. You see them kind of investigating this whole question. And then this movie gets made. Uh, One of the things that you talk about or write about is the fact that this movie could have been made very differently. William Goldman, the legendary screenwriter, I think when he was first told by Robert Redford, who'd optioned the book about the project, he didn't even know who Woodward and Bernstein were. He didn't recognize those names, uh, but he was the guy who was going to bring it to life. I'll let you pick up the story from there. Right. And of course, you know, 50 years later, the there are so many competing versions of even this story of how <laughs> Goldman got attached. But, um, you know, at some point, Redford, you know, Goldman had, had written Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the great Waldo Pepper for Redford, and they had become friendly. And 
at some point when, you know, it took Redford months and months just to run Woodward to ground to even talk to him about doing a movie of the, of the book that they were working on just because um, Woodward and Bernstein were so skittish about, you know, going Hollywood and all of that. But at, at some point in one of those very early meetings that Redford had with Woodward and Bernstein, he invited Goldman to come along. And it was sort of the, he always intended it to be a character study of these two mismatched, very different temperamentally, culturally, physically, just any, you name it, you know, their journalistic experience was completely different. He just thought the whole kind of odd couple nature of their, of their collaboration was interesting. And the fact that their sort of, um, you know, shoe leather sleuthing eventually led to to what we know as Watergate, but he really wanted to home in on that that very early those early months of the investigation. So um, that was kind of the that was the conceit or the the scaffolding that he wanted uh, Goldman to kind of look at and think about. Right, and that was ultimately. I mean, as you say. Um I think about that the documentary I saw about the making of Galaxy Quest and all the things that could could have been not Galaxy <laughs> Quest. It's kind of like this. It's a, like a whole bunch of things have to go right and a whole lot of things that are bad ideas have to go wrong and get kicked out for any really great movie to be made. But what we wind up with is this kind of masterpiece of paranoia. And and you know, and it's sort of interesting too cuz usually it takes a while to digest the pig and the python of some terrible event. I mean, oddly enough, Pakula's preceding movie was The Parallax View, which was one of several movies inspired by the Kennedy assassinations, the two Kennedy assassinations. But it took, you know, a decade or, or more to be able to make movie a movie like that or executive action. So it, it's just piggybacked within two years on those. We have a movie that evokes a lot of that kind of DC paranoia, uh, except in connection with Watergate. Exactly. I mean, it's it's absolutely remarkable when you think about the fact, as Garrett said in the earlier segment, you know, Woodward and Bernstein finished their book before the story is finished. You know, they it, it, it's barely even halfway through. Um, Goldman turns in his first draft before Nixon resigns. I mean, that's how fast events were moving while they were working on this. But again, I think the, the movie, fairly or unfairly, has been sort of the, the the prism through which we understand Watergate. I mean, when something is as good as all the president's men, it endures. And so then that becomes public memory. And um, when in reality, it was just about this very specific um, period in the investigation, these very early days. So I don't think, you know, I can't speak for Redford, but I, I don't think anybody, Redford or Pakula, um, ever intended for this to be the Watergate movie, right? They, they, it was a very specifically, very tightly focused character study of these two men and this very tightly focused procedural that has sort of in ensuing years become kind of the metonym of the metonym, if you will. You know, Watergate itself is a metonym for so many different layers of conspiracy and characters and investigations and and turnabouts and then the movie becomes an, an even more distilled kind of almost reductive version of that yeah and i think it's not only all of the things that you just said but it also becomes kind of the template for a kind uh, of narrative and i don't think any subsequent subsequent cultural product embraced that template as fervently as the series that I'm about to play a clip from. Katie, this is C2. I've given you so much this evening. 
You've offered me next to nothing in return. You haven't told me anything I didn't already know. I'm curious. If you've encountered Krychek, why didn't you kill him then? Because here's the tape. Ah, yeah. The tape. The tape has been selling those secrets off. You don't know where he is either, do you? You're looking for him too. Mr. Mulder. Anyone can be gotten to. Certainly you've no doubt of that. That, of course, is The X-Files, you know, which is when it's not about the monster of the week, it's always about these kind of shadowy meetings in parking garages and other shaded areas uh, of Washington, D.C. For the first season, there's literally a character known as Deep Throat. He gets killed off, but there are other people like this guy. Uh, I mean, in in a way, Pakula not only created this kind of semi-mythic understanding of, of Watergate, but the movie kind of sets the stage for more paranoid fiction. Totally. And, you know, (laughs) I love that you played that because the last article that I did kind of deep diving into a film that had as much kind of cultural um, influences as as all the president's been was was JFK, was Oliver Stone's JFK. And you can make a direct you can draw a direct line between the Mr. X speech, you know, Donald Sutherland's Mm -hmm. just, you know, like the soliloquy about all of these shadowy conspiracies, um, which is considered a mini masterpiece of relaying very dense information and gnarly information. But you can draw a direct line from that to all the president's men, which did the exact same thing. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just constantly throwing information at the audience um, that could be considered arcane. I mean, it, none of this should work on paper. It's all telephones and talking, you know, the most uncinematic things in the whole world. But Pakula's genius um, was knowing what to do. I think, frankly, it was casting. You know, I mean, Redford had been cast by Warner Brothers. They wouldn't make it unless he starred. And then he had to find a star of his equal. And there was Dustin Hoffman. And then Pakula just populates the film with perfect supporting players and character actors and even background players to give it just this um this deep this depth and this breadth um that is constantly giving the audience information you know whether it's visual or verbal or sonic you know in terms of that great musical score by david shire and the sound design so yeah you're right i mean i think he it's absolutely the the um it's the urtext, you know, for, for an entire genre. <laughs> it absolutely is. I could talk a lot more about this, but I'm out of time. <laughs> uh, Anne Hornaday is the Washington Post chief film critic. I hope she'll come back, talk about something else like this. The author of Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies. Thanks to all of you who listened. Spend a little time thinking about Watergate. The burglary anniversary is, in fact, Friday.